Hello, Herstorians. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and welcome to another episode of Women of Herstory, a podcast dedicated to celebrating women who have made or are making their mark on our society. Give a big howdy-do to your favorite co-host, Cowboy Dave. How goes it on the ranch these days, Cowboy Dave? Pew, pew! Well, uh, things are mighty fine on this ranch. I'm not going to do the voice. Things are mighty fine on this ranch. <laughs> you know, tending to horses, cattle, a lot. And well, ha- how are you? I'm really, I'm doing well. First things first, uh, I'm the realist. No, just kidding. Um, all right, that's all, folks. We'll <laughs> see you next week. And done. Mm-hmm. And seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a tiny bit of news in case you've been living under a rock. The United States of America has its first ever Madam Vice President in Kamala Harris. So, ladies, make sure your shoes are on because there's glass everywhere. It hurts. My feet are bleeding. (laughs) (laughs) No one told me to wear shoes today. (laughs) This is the worst day. (laughs) Today's Herstory lesson takes place on the other side of the world. We are going to be talking about Egyptian feminist Huda Sharawi. Ooh. Yeah. Are we ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's hop right in. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. <laughs> Huda was born on June 23rd, 1879 in Al-Minya while it was under British protectorate. Shouts out Geminis. <laughs> Gemini season. Get out. Oh. Now, this was before the official British occupation of Egypt, just three years later in 1882. She was the daughter of Muhammad Sultan Pasha. He was was a landowner, and he was active in Egyptian politics, and her mother was a Circassian slave. She was raised in Cairo and grew up in an Egyptian harem during a time when upper-class women were required to live in secluded apartments and veil their face in public. Huda was educated in the harem, which was uncommon. She was taught to read the Quran, and she was tutored in Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and Islamic subjects by Muslim female tutors. Wow, that's that's so cool. Isn't that interesting? I love how educated she was, and that she was um, have. I'm glad some sort of education. Yeah, I'm Mm -hmm. glad she was able to um, have some sort of education in a time when that wasn't so prevalent for women. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, she was one of the few that were even like educated at all. She was extremely bright, and she wrote poetry in Arabic and French. She grew increasingly frustrated when she realized that she wasn't being awarded the same education as her brother. Isn't that the worst? That's, I that, even... I, I, that all, that's, that's happened a few times in some of the women we've, we've uh, done episodes over, where they're, like, all really excited about their education, and then they realize what their brother's being taught in yeah. comparison to, like, what they're being taught. And they're like, oh, well, well that's... Hold my beer. Yeah. And then they, like, <laughs> go in. Yeah. In her autobiography, Harem Years, The Memoirs of an Egyptian Feminist, she talks about how she hated being a girl. She was kept from the education she desired, and later she was being denied the freedoms that she deeply yearned for. She showed her spunky independence at an early age, however, when she entered a department store in Alexandria to buy her clothes instead of having them brought to her house. There you go. Yeah, she there was like, I can do it myself. Thank you. Moving on up. <laughs> now, 
Huda was involuntarily wed at the age of 13 to her cousin, Ali Shirawi, a man 40 years her senior who was already married. Now, she felt compelled to agree or risk dishonoring her family. As I mentioned before, she was extremely bright and she stipulated in her marriage contract that monogamy must be a condition to the marriage. And um, Mr. Grosspants continued to see his first wife, and the two were then estranged. Wait, so she, so she she had they had a contract. Yeah, and she was like, "Was there such a thing as like a prenup before this?" It's not a prenup; it's a marriage contract. Was there? Was there? I'm 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 just I'm just I'm just ta- surprised I'm, that I'm, she had a say in I'm it. I'm very at all. much yeah. Well, yeah. Two things. I'm very tickled by the fact that there was like paperwork like a like documentation that she was able to have a say in um mm-hmm. and to the fact that um as a 13 year old she was she able was to like, like that she i was couldn't like, even right. i don't even think i was i knew fully <laughs> what i enjoyed eating at 13 <laughs> like i'm pretty sure i was like salad like salad sucks chicken nuggets all the way and brownies and for the rest of she's time she's like okay how can i sort of get out of this without dishonoring my family Okay, we're going to say monogamy, and then I'm going to catch him sleeping with his first wife, and then that is going to be grounds for me to not have to be... She's still married to him, but estranged. Yeah. Customs and traditions are just very interesting. Interesting. She used the next seven years of her life to advance her studies and become active in her community. In 1900, after pressure from her family, she reconciled with her husband... (laughs) <laughs> I I'm sorry. didn't know if you did that. That's so good. <laughs> she reconciled with I'm not like wow. we're not I'm so dissing anyone's traditions, but also like you shouldn't ever How did marry she your sneak, cousin. She so. snuck that in there. That was so funny. I looked at her like maybe she made a mistake. No. Wow. That was real. Mm-hmm. The two had a daughter, Buthania, in 1902, and a son, Mohammed, in 1905. <laughs> Any extra toes? And you, like, smiled at me, too, when you said it. You're like, cousin, and then you looked at me, like, see what I did there. That's great. The couple became important social and political figures in Egypt in the 20th century. Ali was a founding member of the Waft Party, Egypt's nationalist party, and Huda was a developing activist. In 1909, Huda helped to create the first secular philanthropic organization operated by Egyptian women. Awesome. I know. She argued that women-run social service projects were important for two reasons. First, that by engaging in projects, women would be able to expand their horizons and acquire practical hmm. knowledge and further be able to direct their focus hmm. outward. And two, duh. <laughs> and second, she wanted to challenge the idea that all women are creatures of pleasure and beings in need of protection. Uh, I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's still she's like here. Are, here are two reasons why these things like this makes sense, and it's and like there she was just still gave like back. the most. They were like, like mm. she gave the most. Like <laughs> she's like, and she might as well be like, here are the reasons why humans need oxygen. <laughs> well, yeah, it's necessary too. You need it, <laughs> and it's just so crazy to think about times when when and even still today that those arguments are having to be made. Like, no, ugh, it's just right to allow people 
an entire half of the population to participate in these things. It's actually even worse now because you would think after all this time and knowledge and history that people would be able to learn. But if anything, they really hunker down on their beliefs and they're like, well, I mean, it's been this way since the beginning of time. And it's like, that's not a good reason at all for anything. Yeah, it's not great. In 1914, Huda founded the Union of Educated Egyptian Women, and that same year, she traveled to Europe for the first time. She worked across the class line to demonstrate against British occupation. Huda shared that encounters with various prominent female thinkers helped to shape her feminist outlook, one being Eugenie Lebrun, the wife of Egyptian Prime Minister Hussein Rushdie Pasha, and Marguerite Thomas-Clement, a women's rights activist and politician from Luxembourg, she expressed that the concept of women's rights could be found in the tenets of Islam. Early on, Huda saw she could look to Islam to demand more rights for women. So, in this sense, she preceded what we now call the Muslim feminist movement. Emeritus professor at the University Paris Diderot, Sonia Diane Herzbrun, said this to Le Monde Afrique. I can I can do the French pronunciation sometimes. Yeah, that, yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> As time went on, Huda became increasingly bolder in her activism. In 1919, she helped organize the first and largest anti-colonial women's demonstration. It was called the March of Veiled Women. They took to the streets of Cairo to protest British colonial rule and to foil, quote, a British plan to exile four Egyptian nationalist leaders, including her husband. Man. In 1920, Huda founded the Waftist Women's Central Committee and subsequently served as its president. Finally, after years of protests, Britain granted Egypt their independence in 1922. Wow. After they had already taken away their influence and they gave it back. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> How does that work? Though, it, like, what is that? You're just giving back what was already mine, but okay. Um, though, Though Britain still retained a great deal of control afterwards. Despite Egyptian women being heavily involved in the struggle for Egypt's independence, they were not invited to participate with their male counterparts in negotiations with the British. Gross. Following Egypt's independence, they denied women's suffrage. Yeah. Nevertheless, she submitted a list of 32 nationalist and feminist demands that were completely ignored. I'm, I'm glad she did it, though. And, yeah, you know, she to, like, was set like, that precedent. Okay. She was like, well, I'm just going to do this because <laughs> no one else is doing this and I, 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 this needs to be done. And if it doesn't, then no one's going to say anything. Mm-hmm. Huda kept an open engagement with Egypt's nationalist movement. She was able to negotiate, quote, maximum dividends with her upper-class status and alliances with men who also held similar ideas surrounding the class divide, ideologies, and politics for the benefit of the feminist nationalist ideals she held. It's those well-educated men that are like... Well. Oh. These men were initially uncomfortable with the, quote, liberation of women, as they called it at the time. But she was able to convince them that supporting her movement would fit the image of themselves that they had held as civilized people from civilized nations. Oh, man. They're not. Oh, yeah. Damn. They're not as woke as you she, want them to be. No, well. But she uh, kind of, she's she's very smart. I, I have, it. It's so good. So the language she used in her demands, 
used the reason a feminist program was needed was not because it was in innately correct, but because Egypt needed to, quote, reach a level of glory and might like that reached by civilized nations. Right, right. It's like stroking but their ego But they also, almost. like, don't know that, like, that wasn't even happening in the, quote, civilized nations. Women still didn't. Women had just gotten the right to vote, I like you that know? you almost sang that. I like that you almost decided to put a melody behind that. You know, I'm going to write a whole musical. That. doesn't need to happen in this case, but I understand. Um, it's so weird, though. Yeah. yeah. And the agenda was validated then by the, quote, spirit of religion as a secondary justification. And this was an excellent strategy. She knew to try to find common ground um, with the with the Muslims, with the men and women, so that she could build a she could like help build a successful Egyptian nation state in a way that also included women, although they were like still ignored, of course, even with you know a handful of people on their side. They were making a few strides, but she played to she played to her strength. He played to yeah her strengths and their weaknesses because mm-hmm. she knew that in order to like unify or in order she had to like play that sort of card where it was like this would be the betterment of the country mm-hmm. if like women also people aren't like, gonna look at us as uncivilized. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be we, cool if mm-hmm. we all kind of look like we were coming up right even if like maybe we weren't all but like <laughs> everyone else thought we were all kind of like coming yeah. up then it'd be like it's wow so, it's so Egypt's weird coming up. yeah yeah it's, no but it's very interesting she she is she's the ultimate hustler yeah yeah after her husband's death in 1923 Gross. huda shifted her focus from anti-colonialism to women's equality Later that year, she created and served as the president of the Egyptian Feminist Union, or EFU. She sought to achieve women's suffrage, reform Egypt's personal status laws, and to expand educational opportunities for girls and women. And something interesting to note is that there is actually no direct translation in Arabic for the term feminist. Mm. EFU women used the French term feministe Mm. in French was the the language of the upper class. So as I'm sure you've noticed, there's a theme of of class, the class divide yeah. throughout this episode. I like that they use the French term though. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I I didn't realize there wasn't um like a direct translation, which you know, interesting, interesting. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fair. That's very interesting to think about because yeah. people people like argue about like you know, certain terms and it's like some, some places don't even recognize like that is a word of like the (laughs) word, let alone like, you know, the ending of the word. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's just not even in there. They use another term entirely. And there's not even, even like a similar term in Arabic, at least not at the time. That's why they went by the EFU. 1923 was a year of action for Huda as she attended the International Women's Suffrage Alliance in Rome. Cool. In a speech she gave, she argues her conception of Egyptian feminism. Two key points being, women in ancient Egypt had equal status to men, and it was under foreign domination that women had lost those rights. And that Islam granted women equal rights to men, but that the Quran had been misinterpreted by men in power. Um, you know, hashtag shocked, uh, isn't that true of all religion? Hot takes with Heather? Damn. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that just seems, yeah, they were like, in other news, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the sky is blue, yeah. men misinterpret laws for their own gains and personal power, yeah, 
and it's, yet, yeah. and the sun rises. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. No, that's as far back as religion goes, there's always been a group of people, men, yeah, will who it, have just kind absolutely of absolutely taken it and just said, well, this is what this means, and yeah, religion, it puts me in a position like of that. power. Yeah, religion's real weird. Like that's that. gonna be that. That should be like, uh, we're gonna is... start a new podcast, Hot Takes with Heather. That doesn't sound like a me thing. That sounds like you, where you just spit no. for ten minutes, like, <laughs> like uh, angry, <laughs> angry. Or not I, even angry. I just, can like, just, really passionate. I can just read any news article and just give a hot take I to it. Really bust counterpoints. My chops. Oh, I'm good at those counterpoints. Counterpoints. <laughs> Goodness. So when she returned to Egypt from the conference, she performed one of her most memorable acts of protest. She stood outside of the Cairo train station, removed her face and head covering, and encouraged other women around her to do the same. This act depicted two very different aspects of her life. One within the conventions of the harem system that she grew up in, and one as the leader of a women's movement. Her friend and colleague, Sessa Nabarui, said, We can't say we are free in Rome and then wear the veil again upon our return to Egypt. She suggested that the death of her father and the death of Huda's husband emboldened the women to carry out such a, quote, radical act. That's great. I love that they just mm -hmm. took that. Yeah, they were like, okay. Egyptian women in rural and poor urban areas didn't cover their face, only their heads. Mm. According to Professor Herzbrun from earlier, the face veil was a symbol of privilege. It was not a religious one. The hijab oh. is a covering worn by many Muslim women. It's a symbol of conflict surrounding culture and collective identity in the Arab world from late colonial to post-colonial periods. That's when the like the, the meaning behind the hijab just kind of got wishy-washy. It, it meant something before and then colonizers came in and kind of ruined, ruined everything. Shocking. Proponents and attackers assign good or evil to its essential meaning without considering that it can be both or neither and that the meaning has shifted drastically within historical context. Some say Huda, quote, removed the curtain behind the way upper-class households seclude its women. And by removing the veil, she dropped the symbolic barrier that denied these women full access to public life. She said that by donning the hijab in the first place, she had grounded herself in Islam and Arabic culture and therefore could claim the right to interpret that culture anew with authority and legitimacy. Yes. Yeah. And, and some people say that Huda's act was radical or even un-Islamic. <laughs> but by stripping her head and face cover, she was removing a notion in Egyptian society that they represented, class divisiveness. It's and it helped in restoring it to a personal religious choice you know her her whole thing is like you're not just it, it's up to you how you identify with this symbol and it needs to be put the power needs to be put back into the woman's hands if of she course. wants to wear it for her religious purposes that does not make her not a feminist it's really that just, just makes her making her own choices it's really just the worst thing when people impose their religion on you to the point where they're like 
infringing on her rights as a human being. You know, the fact that she is, um, like, the clutch my pearls type of people who who thought she was so radical for her, like, interpretation. Oh, like, how she's like, you don't know what are I've you been kidding through. Me? Like, are you, like, are, yeah. are you kidding me? She, like, yeah, are, she's like, it does not make cons- me less of a like, Muslim woman. That doesn't, that's so disrespectful yeah. to, like, the individual as a human being. Like, if you care that much about a person and want to say something about how, like, the way how they're living, they're living take, yeah. ne- take into consideration what they've been through before and just kind of mm-hmm. assume that maybe they've either thought about it or, like, they're just, it's, it's just not for them. Yeah, That's just so disrespectful yeah, like and it's whack. Just been, yeah, you don't, you don't understand what so the whack. decisions, the, the decision someone has made to, like, not wear it or to wear it it's you know? a belief system you you can't you're you're disrespecting you're you're basically disrespecting the ideologies yeah like when you forcefully impose yourself like that to the point where like yeah. you know they were criticizing her for yeah and she's like X, just y, the fact Z. that i wear it in the first place and have literally this is my whole life this is my what attire. are you talking about These are my, like, yeah this is, yeah this is yeah my and she's like please, i'm doing this so be. that i can assign my own meaning to it, it not because i am and you know i she wanted to remove the class divide to remove these things and, and throughout this time, Huda was continuing her efforts with the Waft Party, trying to gain ground within the government for women's rights. It is completely unjust that the Egyptian Waft, which fights for the right of Egypt and its liberation, denies half of the population the gains made from this liberation. Huda wrote this in a letter to Saad Zaglul, the leader of the Waft Party and Prime Minister of Egypt in 1924. Huda led pickets of Egyptian women at the opening of Parliament in January. Wow. In January of um, 1924, mm. after the government announced that it had banned women from its opening. Uh. Shortly after these events, Huda resigned from the Waftist Women's Central Committee, no doubt out of absolute frustration. She then put her focus onto the EFU. Huda's friend Nabarui said. In December 1924, we established 16 as the minimum age for marriage for women. We founded the first secondary school for young women. In 1933, we celebrated the first women university graduates. Wow. Making moves. 1933. Mm -hmm. The EFU launched one of Egypt's first feminist journals in French in 1925 called L'Egyptienne. Two years later, they launched Al Marizia, I'm so sorry, the Arabic edition of the publication. Huda was instrumental in 1944 in convening the first Arab feminist union as the EFU had become weary of the Western feminists. They called for unity and solidarity with the Arabs of Palestine. While she had officially left the Waft Party, that didn't mean she wasn't continually fighting for the Egypt she believed in. She proposed the internationalization of the Suez Canal, and in 1945, she received the highest decoration from the Egyptian state. It is the Nishan al-Kamal for services rendered to the country. They recognized her for her struggles for gender equality and national liberation, which is freaking ironic because it literally withheld from her political rights. It was a system of contradictions with which she and other women had to live. Like, like literally, they're like, 
here's this award for fighting for women's rights, but, like, you still don't get any rights. Yeah. Or, like, here's this award even though we were, like, thrashing you for years. Honestly, and it's, like, (laughs) it it reminds me of when RBG said, like, hard pass on just sticking a woman's face on on some U.S. currency without giving women, like, additional rights. Uh, And it was just symbolic. Just a completely symbolic award to say look we reward the our our women who are fighting for justice without actually giving them anything they're like "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." huda died of cholera in 1947 at the age of 68 and she led the efu until her death shortly before her death always one to be making waves she proposed the abolition of nuclear weapons and truthfully Super on board with that. Yeah, I was wondering. Yep. I, I was like, super. I was on board wondering with that. what um, if she had done. I'm very sing-songy today, anything. but I know. Yeah. See, I've po- I pointed it's that funny. out. <laughs> um, yeah, nuclear weapons. Well, you know, World War Two had just started up, yeah. or not just started, but they were like this was, like, this was like years later on. Right, there was like the aftermath, and so. Oh it was yeah, like, there's just a, you know, and <laughs> she was uh, like, just, maybe we should do. Yeah, she's like, maybe no weapons. one should have that much power. She's like, I know I was talking about women's rights, but maybe as human right. No more nuclear weapons. Yeah, no more nukes, guys. No this more is, nukes. This is just as much of a human rights thing as it is a feminist thing, guys, if you think about it. Like, we're all dead. So. Huda published her feminist journal and represented Egypt at women's congresses across the globe. In Graz, Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin, Marseille, Istanbul, Brussels, Budapest, Copenhagen, wow. Interlaken, and Geneva. Among just a few, truly. Here's where I get... A little ragey. After her death, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser formally banned the women's movement that Huda had founded, though he continued to use her image to represent a doled-down, government-approved form of feminism, yet another form of symbolic support for a state that offered few rights to their women. Diet feminism. Ugh. Feminism like. Unfortunately, the small gains that Huda made for gender equality and national liberation in the 20s and 30s have slowly but surely reversed through decades of autocratic rule in Egypt and the rise of political Islam. Scholars say that to understand Huda's feminism and activism, you must consider the context of the anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggles of the time. They argue that she did not abandon Islam like her critics claim. She was acting and reacting within a multitude of complexities surrounding the times. Absolutely. There were tensions she had to negotiate through, accusations that the feminist movement was entirely westernized and inauthentic and not, you know, just like the need to have rights as a human. Right. And she was fighting against leadership and the portrayal of of women. Her early assumptions that the experience of a small category of privileged women could represent and speak on the behalf of the experience of all Egyptian women was, uh, you know, troubling. She held a skewed vision of what poor women's lives were. Um, she she saw them sort of as passive recipients of social services, um, not to be consulted about priorities or goals. She thought she thought that the rich were guardians and protectors of the nation. You know, she is she is seen as a key contributor to the modern Egyptian nation state. She is revered as complex, contradictory, pioneering, and invaluable. She saw that the national struggle for independence in Egypt and the struggle for women's emancipation were inseparable and interdependent. 
And it's so, she's such an interesting woman to me because, you know, while a, a lot of her critics will say, well, she's full of contradictions. We all are. She very much so. She, you know, her experience as, as a woman in the upper class, she didn't consider that her experience wouldn't speak for all experiences of, of women and in, in Egypt, but she was using the tools she had and the passion that she had and the position she had to try to create a better nation state that included women in its, in its um, rights, I guess, it, it included women in its, in its government, in, in representing them in ways that was not being done. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like when marginalized people are trying to, uh, you know, weave through the systems, um, they end up picking up things from here and there based on, you know, what, what we're, what we're told. Mm. And then, um, you know, when, when everything kind of coagulates together, Mm -hmm. it becomes harder for, uh, marginalized individuals to be able to fall and make mistakes because Mm -hmm. uh it's almost like they they represent an entire i think the demographic of people that they represent like already had Mm -hmm. it hard and so when they try and succeed and like if they do something then like if they do something and it's not as well received then it's just it just looks like it's it's underwhelming and it's unfortunate mm-hmm. and then when they do something bad then they get then they get lashed out at even but more but then when they do something good they get this award with a, sp- a half purely symbol- form of recognition mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where it's just like it's a, like almost like a participation and award is, for like doing your best job keep up the good work yeah without any actual and it action. just kind of seems is, underhanded it is um, so funny that you say that because the quote I'm I'm closing with quite a quite a thing that has to do with this lay it on me she said men have singled out women of outstanding merit and put them on pedestals to avoid recognizing the capabilities of all women that's so real yeah Yeah. it's so interesting yeah i i couldn't i like you know i'm not even you know it's her uh it's a lot of the women that we've talked about. Um, it's a lot of the women we're going to be talking about where, you know, they do extraordinary things and they only get, like, a finite amount of recognition, whereas, like, men in history who have, like, these, like, these non, like, you, these men, like, there are men in history who have done less, who have gotten more recognition. Oh, who have done and less claims. and done really horrible things. And, and then like, also and everyone's like, like, yeah, but they contributed and to it's this. Like and it's like, not like their backs are against the wall. Yeah. It's like they had a good life and then they contributed this to society. And then now we recognize them for all their merits. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, if, uh, you know, like I, like I keep saying, if a marginalized individual does something, their success might only go so far. Their mm-hmm. recognition might only be recognized so much. Their claim might only be uh, reveled in, you know, mm-hmm. by a, a, a select, few, select few groups of communities because their successes might not have been passed on, might mm-hmm. not have been mm-hmm. as, like, mm-hmm. noteworthy. You know, she it's, she's done a lot for women in Egypt, mm-hmm. you know, and she is a little controversial, but I definitely think that... Um, you know, I love a lot of a lot of her. these a lot of these women deserve their flowers and it sucks they only get like a rose or well, like it's, well a it's also like something that and she was saying that like after their death they get like one she was saying things. something about like you know her saying like they 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 like to single out someone who does something really really incredible and then 
just to avoid recognizing that all women are capable, mm-hmm. you know? And I uh, that, that also, for me, what I sort of felt like I saw, at least, I mean, my... I could have been researching weird, I don't know, but I felt like by the end of her life, she had strayed away from her idea that, like, poor women are there to be aided, uh, like her initial kind of stances, because at the end, she's like, literally, all these women are capable. Why are you, like, just talking about me? It's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, historians, for tuning in again. Subscribe. Tell your friends. Please. Send out carrier pigeons. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Bringing those back. Okay. Or maybe like a rat, you know, like uh, mm. from Harry Potter, Hermione. Hermione doesn't have a rat. Who, who Ron had the has rat? a rat. Ron had the Man, I But haven't... it was actually Wormtail. Yeah, well, just make sure He's it's not, not Wormtail. Get a rat that's <laughs> not Wormtail. I mean, that's just a given. Get a rat that's not a human pretending to be a rat. That's just a given. Yeah, or get yourself a given. Come back this Friday for an interview with Sue Thaden, the CEO and founder of From Now On, a Nebraska-based technology company that powers mobile applications for over 80 colleges and conference sporting events in the United States, including the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship, among others. She tells us how she got started, where the idea came from, and so much more. It even has a special appearance from Cowboy Dave. Pew, pew. <laughs> Howdy, y'all. Uh, yeah, he, he uh, co-hosts that interview with me. It's a good one. You guys can follow us on the social media. Twitter at... The Her Story Pod. Instagram at... Women of Her Story. And visit our website at... Ofherstory.com. Until Friday, be safe, stay healthy, and show the world what you're made of. Wear a mask, break glass, bye.